with Veterans Day just behind us, and of course this coming week, it's so hard to believe that this year is drawing to an end already, but we've got Thanksgiving Day coming up this Thursday. Um, it is certainly placing us in a season of gratitude and honor. And they are good earthly reminders that these are the ways that we are to be walking in as kingdom people at all times. Always with hearts of gratitude. Always looking to honor not only our king, but to honor him by honoring those around us as well. And it's really easy for us to be grateful because in the country that we're living in, even the poorest of the poor really have got it pretty good, right? We are a blessed, rich people in so many different ways, incredibly blessed by God. And it is because of that blessing. You know, God didn't warn his people that when they get drug off in exile and, you know, when the famine and the plagues come their way, not to forget him, but to call out to him. He didn't have to remind them to do that in those times. Do you know what God was concerned about with his people? The times that he had to warn his people about, don't forget me. It was in the times of blessing and abundance that they would forget why they were there. Because it's very easy for us to get distracted in life to allow discontentment and comparison to seep in and to steal away our gratitude when we are just so, we're such spoiled kids. I mean, come on, we are, we're spoiled children of God. But because of how spoiled and blessed we are, it is so easy to start comparing ourselves to others, allowing discontentment to settle in and to steal away our gratitude. This causes our praise to be replaced with grumbling and our joy to be replaced with discouragement. But God is inviting us into a better place. God is inviting us into a better way of living where joy and peace persist regardless of our circumstances. No matter how good life is or how bad life gets, he is calling us into a place where we are so sheltered by the covering of his wings that there is a peace and joy that nothing can steal away, no matter what the enemy or life might throw at us. First Timothy talks to us about this. I'm starting in verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6 of 1 Timothy. And most of us are familiar with this first verse, right? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness and contentment. Is great gain. And he reminds us of this truth. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and traps and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. There's no such thing as a get-rich-quick scheme where everybody would be rich quickly, right? There is no such thing. <sighs> I could go on and on and on. That's a whole message in itself. And he goes on to verse 10, an often misquoted verse. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is not evil, but the love of it, serving mammon instead of God, 
is the root of all kinds of different evils and wickedness. In fact, it says that many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, people of God, flee from all of this. That's the only solution. Flee from it. Get out of those things. Get, shake those mindsets. Stop feeding that lottery machine thinking that you're going to get rich quick. You know, Stop sending money to those evangelists thinking that your blessing is coming. Your blessing comes from obedience to God. Being who he called you to be. Doing what he's calling you to do. That's the best place you could be on the face of this earth. The most richly blessed place. Flee all of it and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And make your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Whew. Those are two radically different lifestyles that are being compared there. Those who want to get rich quick and pierce themselves with all of these plagues of life and, and those who just pursue peace and faith and love and gentleness, who, who are a kingdom people and, and who let their testimony be known in front of many. Because Jesus isn't concerned at all, according to his word, that he's going to find gratitude when he comes back here on the earth. Not concerned about whether he's going to find gratitude or thankfulness. Um, that's usually the message this Sunday right before Thanksgiving, but he, he wasn't concerned about that, so we're not going to be concerned about that, whether he's going to find a grateful, thankful people. He was concerned about whether his people would be giving thanks, not only for what has already been received, but a people who are giving thanks for what is yet to come. A people of faith, a people who give thanks in advance. Thanks in advance. Praise. That's what he was concerned to. Commonly, giving thanks in advance is referred to as faith. Faith. Giving thanks to God in advance while you're still in the valley. While you're still in pain. While you're still in debt. While you're still whatever. You're giving God praise because he is making a way where there is no other way. He is building a testimony not that you did something good, but that he delivered you when you could not do anything to help yourself. Faith is thanks in advance, praise in expectation, and confidence in the good thing that's coming. Woo, confidence in the good thing that is coming. Trust in the God who promised it. Trust in the God who promised it. That's what Jesus said here. He taught us this parable in Luke chapter 18. It's a familiar parable. I know i got to remind myself of it often. Luke chapter 18. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should first always pray and second, never give up. So if you're not sure what to do in the circumstances you're in, go back to this. Always pray and never give up. Okay? Then Jesus said, in a certain town, there was a judge, neither feared God nor cared about what people thought. And there was also a widow in that same town who kept coming to him. And she kept coming with this plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused her. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about what people think, 
Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice and that she won't eventually come and attack me. I, I love those, those little old prayerful grandmas, right? You know, I know my, Becky, she's got a grandma that, you know, there are people that should be afraid of her as tiny and frail and fragile as she is, you know. When she's got something in her head, there ain't no talking her out of it. And, whew, she gets feisty, gets feisty. I love that. And so the Lord says this with that picture in mind. Listen to what the unjust judge says. <laughs> Not listen to what the Lord's saying or what God's saying. Listen to that unjust judge who cares less about God and people. And in verse 7 he says, And will not God also bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Is he going to keep putting them off? I tell you the truth. I will see that they get justice and quickly. Woo! However, when the Son of Man comes again, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith? Will he find people giving thanks in advance? Crying out day and night, but yet crying out because they know justice is coming. Because there's a purpose behind Jesus using a judge as this parable for faith. A judge must make judgments in accordance with the text of the law. Doesn't matter what their personal perspective is, or their feelings are, or their politics are, toward the case, or toward the people that are involved in it. They've got to act according to the law. That is what justice is. And sadly, it is missing in this country in a lot of areas. But it's getting restored! Judges on the throne, Whew. and he judges rightly in every case. The judge in this parable didn't care about the people, and he didn't care about God, yet the law required him to administer justice and to show favor toward the relentless widow's case. Now, of course, we know that God is compassionate. He does care about us. However, he is also bound by his own covenant. He is bound by his own covenant that he has made. Jesus came not to, and he said this many times, he came not to abolish the law, not to change the law, but to perfectly and entirely fulfill the law to the last letter on our behalf. He did what we could never do. That's the new covenant. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant and forged a new one of faith. He didn't change it. He didn't say there's anything wrong with it. He fulfilled it perfectly and entirely. Therefore, we don't have to abide perfectly by the law so that we can stand before Judge Jesus and be found righteous. But rather, we plead our case through Jesus who did it for us. Jesus, our only righteousness. He's the only way that we can be found righteous when we stand before him. But will Jesus find faith when he returns? Will he find faith, thanks in advance? Will he find people standing on the covenant promise, reminding him of it day and night, crying out to him until justice is administered? Because he will come and he will come quickly. Will he hear prayers that plead, God give us justice against our adversary? This is a radically different way to pray. So often we pray like we are beggars. Like that woman 
who, who was like a dog who just wanted scraps from the table because she wasn't a Jew. And guess what Jesus said? I haven't seen faith like this anywhere among my people. Faith. Whew. And he gave her more than just scraps. He gave her healing. But how often do we beg and plead? God, please, please heal me. God, please, please provide this. Please, please, please. We are children of God. We are royalty. We are not beggars in the kingdom. We've been adopted into his family. You are his children. You are heirs of righteousness, heirs of the kingdom in every way. So Jesus taught us, instead of praying, pretty, pretty please and begging and everything, to pray as this woman prayed. If you have lack, it's because you have an adversary. And if you have an adversary who has stolen, killed, or destroyed something in your life, then you need justice. Right? You don't need to call and Judge Judy, okay? There's a, there's a higher form of justice, although I love the way she handles some cases. <laughs> we need justice. That is one thing that I rarely ever pray for. i got to be honest. This is really messing with my mind. I don't think this way, but I need to start thinking this way. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. To cry out for justice against our adversary. Justice against the adversary. Because he is encroaching on the law. He is breaking the law. Breaking the covenant that you have with God. So our prayer, give us justice over our adversary. Make him repay. Right? Our adversary has stolen our health, our wealth, our freedom. He has destroyed relationships and so much more. And this takes us back to the old covenant. Look at these promises. Exodus chapter 22 verse 3. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. And even if they have nothing, does that mean they're off the hook? If they have nothing, they don't have to make restitution for stealing from us? No! They must be sold to pay for their theft. they got to sell themselves into slavery. That was the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant. Exodus 22, 7. If anyone gives a neighbor silver or goods for safekeeping, okay? All you're doing is saying, hey, I'll watch over that for you. Hey, park your tractor in my barn, you know, so that it's, it's safe. And then someone comes in and steals it. That thief, if they are caught, they must pay back double. Oh, I love these. The thief has to pay back double. Double what was stolen. You know? I think we should get more excited about this. I mean, you caught the thief. I know, it gets even better. You caught the thief. He's busted. He has stolen your health. So guess what? He's got to repay double. Double what's been stolen. Isn't that what happened in Job? Isn't that what happened at the end of Job? Everything that had been stolen from him, God let it happen for a season, didn't he? He let it happen for a season, but oh, it was just a season. That season had an end date. And when that end date was reached, God quickly restored double everything the enemy had taken from him. Your doubling is coming if you always pray and don't give up. If you keep crying out to God for justice against your adversary, he has stolen and killed and destroyed enough, right? And then we get to the best part, Proverbs 6, 30, 31. Excuses may be made for a thief who steals because he's starving, right? 
you know, I've got a little bit of compassion when someone steals a loaf of bread from Walmart because they're hungry. What they stole it was not that valuable, and it was just to meet their needs. There, there can be excuses made, but even if he is caught, he must pay back seven times what he stole. Even if he has to sell everything in his house, he's got to pay back sevenfold. Sevenfold. Entirely, perfectly paid back. Sevenfold. Think about that. How cool is that? If you've got credit card debt, take a look at how much interest has been stolen from you. Think about seven times that being repaid to you. How awesome would that be? The Bible has this thing in the Old Covenant called the Year of Jubilee. When all debts are forgiven, everything's repaid, everything's restored. It's like a giant reset. Woo! How awesome would that be, right? We don't realize how much people steal from us because we live in a culture of thievery where we're just okay with it. We just accept it, you know? I need a car, that's just what I got to do. I just got to go head over heels in debt and repay, you know, 10 times the debt that I borrowed to get it. Why do we think that's okay? If somebody did that to you, you would call it thievery, right? It's time to get a kingdom mindset. So Jesus said that there is a purpose behind this parable. Kind of going back to this text. That we should always pray and never give up. Faith is revealed through persistent prayer. Persistent prayer reveals your faith. The enemy uses scriptures to condemn you for praying the same prayer over and over and over because it's like really you think god didn't hear you you think you gotta say a bunch of words you know because th these are scriptural truths persistent prayer we persistently pray not because god's forgotten you that is not why we persistently pray we persistently pray not because god is unaware of our needs in fact the bible says he knows your need before you ever open your mouth and go to him he knows it all we pray persistently, not as penance to somehow earn God's favor, okay? So please forgive me for stepping on toes, but theologically, I don't care how many rosary little beads you move over, that's not how you get forgiveness of sin. First time you ask Jesus to forgive you, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. There's no penance involved. You don't have to punish yourself to earn God's favor. I've never seen that happen before. Find me an, one example in the Bible where somebody punishes themselves and then God's like, you're good now. You're all, I, I've never seen it. Anyways, that's a whole other message for a whole other time. Not as evidence of our own righteousness. And that's not why we persistently pray because we're good and we deserve it and we earned it. We don't persistently pray because God will hear us only because of our many words. Maybe he didn't hear us the first time because he was listening to Dave or Rob or Kathy. Maybe he didn't hear me, so I need to pray it again, you know, while I have his attention. He's not like us earthly fathers that are divided. Oh my goodness, we persistently pray, first of all, to build our own faith. To remind ourselves of what God has promised, right? We persistently pray as revelation to God that we trust in him alone. We're going to him alone over and over and over again. He is our source of justice and righteousness. He's the only place we can go. And it's as a reminder to ourselves that God is faithful and just and true. In fact, Revelation says that's his name, faithful and true. 
We persistently pray to remind ourselves he who promised is faithful and what he promised is true. So not only are we to persistently pray, but right away Jesus turns to another concern about prayer. Jesus said we should always pray and never give up. And then we go from verse 8 to verse 9. And Jesus said this, to some who are confident in their own righteousness and just look down on everyone else, isn't that what a religious spirit does? They're right, everyone else is wrong, and they're going to tell you all about how right they are and how wrong you are. Self-confident, self-righteousness. Jesus told this parable, very quick, simple parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And believe me, there's weight behind these words about the way people perceived a Pharisee and the way people perceived a tax collector, you know, the scum of the earth and the person who can do nothing wrong, you know, these outward appearances and perceptions. So they went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood by himself, stood by himself and prayed. He had to get away from all those sinners, right, by himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like those people. They're robbers. They're evildoers. I'm not like them. They're adulterers. <laughs> I'm definitely not like this tax collector. It's right here in the scripture. That's what the man prayed. What kind of prayer is that? Who's he even talking to? He's kind of talking to himself, I guess. I don't know. Then he goes on. He says, I fast twice a week. And I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. Instead, he just beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. A sinner. Jesus said in verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Who received justice? Who was justified? The humble person. Wouldn't even look up to heaven. Jesus said, for all those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. A humble view of ourselves and an exalted view of God. That's prayer. That's worship. Humble view of ourselves and an exalted view of God. We've got a tiny little puny view of God. We've got to correct that in our if we want to be true proper worshipers, we got the thinking poorly of ourselves down, but we've really got to get a more accurate view of who God is, an exalted view of who he is. But this is faith, right? This is also faith. Thanks in advance. Humble view of ourselves in an exalted view of God. Thanks in advance for what he is going to do. You're exalting him and his works and his ability and his power and his promises. Faith is being honest and truthful about our own circumstances, but exalting God and his promises above them. And turn to Romans chapter 4 if you'd like. This, this, this is evidence of this right here. Faith, thanks in advance, being honest and truthful about our circumstances, but exalting God and his promises above our circumstances. Romans chapter 4, verse 13 to 25. Clearly, God's promises give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants, and it was not based on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. Romans Chapter 4, verse 13. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, 
Faith isn't necessary. The promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. Right? We can't keep the law. It always brings punishment. We always break it. In fact, it goes on and says the only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break in the first place. This is the New Living Translation. I love it. It's true, right? In verse 16, so the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And we are all certain to receive it. Whether or not we live according to the law of Moses. But if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is why the scripture, what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham did what? Abraham believed. Believed in what God promised. That was his whole role. That's faith. He believed in what God promised. Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for Abraham to hope, Abraham just kept on hoping. Woo! <laughs> Do we got any people in the house like that? Even though you've got no reason for hope, you just keep on hoping. You're just that stubborn. You're like that old widow before the judge that just won't give up. No matter how impossible it is, you say, no, 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 no. God said it, right? Woo! He believed in hope that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you're going to have, right? Like the, the, the stars in the sky, like the sand on the seashore. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though he was about 100 years of age. He knew his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. He knew this was impossible, but yet he hoped and hoped and hoped. In fact, in verse 20, he says, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. Glory to God. He brought glory to God, not because he received the promise, but because he stood on the promise that was yet to be fulfilled. Talk about it. I need a mind shift that way. I think glory, I think a greater glory gets given to God when the promise is fulfilled. But that's not what the word of God teaches. Glory gets brought to God when we stand on the promise, even though it is yet to be fulfilled. That's what brings glory to God. Whew. It's powerful. And he goes on, he says, He was fully convinced that God was able to do whatever he promised. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him righteous. And when God counted him righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was, recorded it was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God would also count us as righteous if we just simply were to believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins. He was raised to life to make us right with God. Righteousness by faith in the covenant promise of God. Standing on it. Because faith acknowledges that it's not about us. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God and him who promised. Faith is simultaneously seeing the reality of what we are helpless to do on our own. And also the truth of our faithful God's promise. And also the future prophetically 
when God's truth finally trumps our circumstances and the promise is fulfilled. That's what giving thanks in advance and having faith is all about. That's, I love this. Romans chapter 4, verse 17. Listen to these different versions. God, this is our God, right? This is our God. This is who he is. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. God who gives life to the dead and... Do you know why? I'm like, okay, why does God keep repeating this? I mean, it's, it's the same in every version. It's definitive in every version that this is the way it needs to be translated. Gives life to the dead. I mean, how much more impossible can your circumstances be? How much more transformation can take place than God who gives life to the dead? So let that let your faith arise. He gives life to the dead. And he calls into being that which does not exist. God who gives life to the dead and creates something out of nothing. God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. God who brings the dead back to life and creates new things out of nothing. God who can raise the dead and call into being things that don't even exist yet. That is what God can do. That is what God can do for you, okay? Tell your neighbor, God can do that for you. God will do that for you. God is doing that for you. Hang in there. It's not over yet. God is doing this for you. He is raising the dead to life and things that don't even exist yet, he is calling into existence. And guess what he needs to make that happen? Nothing. He needs nothing. All he's got to do is say it and it will exist. That's how powerful his word is. And so I want to encourage you, this Thanksgiving season, don't just look back and be grateful for what you got. Everybody can do that. You don't need any relationship with God to do that. But you've got to have a relationship with God to call something out of nothing, to call things that do not exist, as if though they did. You've got to be either a lunatic or a person of faith to do that. To stand on the truth that this is mine, no matter what the circumstances are saying, right? Abraham, 100 years old. He's about dead. Sarah's womb, it's been dead a long time ago. But yet he stood on God's promise. Hope beyond hope beyond hope that God could do what he said he would do. And that he would. So we can have faith. We can give thanks in advance because this is our God. This is just what he does all the time. We can persistently pray to remind ourselves and to increase our faith that God has promised and its fulfillment is certainly on its way. We don't give thanks just for what we have, but we give thanks in advance for what is yet to come. In fact, we don't just say it's coming. We say it's here. We call now into existence things that are not. We call things that do not exist as if though they did. That's faith. That is faith. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. I don't know. Do we have some more time? I can just end the message right here. If you need to leave, please feel free to. But I'm going to go on. Don't feel guilty if you have to head out. It's fine. Okay. We're going to go back to when this happened to find some deeper revelation. Faith, thanks in advance. Abraham and Sarah, they waited decades. I love this. One of the toughest lessons a Christian can learn is how to trust and praise God in the uncertain time between the promise and its fulfillment. It's a good, good quote. Good quote. 
Abram and Sarah waited for decades between the time that God first made the promise to them and the time it was fulfilled. They waited a long time. Now what happens in that in-between time, all sorts of challenges happen, right? We're going to turn back. Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. Catch, it's not Abraham yet. God hasn't changed his name yet. Abram, I am your shield and your very great reward. Who is Abram's reward for being faithful? God himself is. God said, I am your shield and I am your reward. But Abram said, but sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? You want to talk about a kingdom mindset. Abram wasn't concerned for himself. He was a rich man. What he was concerned with was not whether he would be blessed by God or not, but what would happen to his blessing when he left the earth. He had a, a cathedral generational mindset. He wanted to not be blessed, but to bless his descendants for generations to come. That's why the promise came to him. Abram said, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. Abram said, you've given me no children. So a servant in my household is going to be my heir. But then the word of the Lord came to him. You see, there's two different encounters with God that Abram has here. The first time, a vision comes and the Lord appears. And the second time is just the word that comes to him. And the word of the Lord says, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood. He will be your heir. Then he took him outside. And he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, indeed, if you can. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's what Paul talked all about back in, in Romans and Hebrews. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. And by the way, this, this very thing that we're reading right here and right now, you're still seeing this play out on the world stage today, right, through the attacks on Israel. This promise is still being attacked by all the Chaldeans all around them. But Abram said that it is theirs. It has been promised to them. Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will take possession of I forgot to buy fresh new ones, so here we go. Okay. Abram brought all, uh, so the Lord said to Abram, bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, and each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Yeah, sorry, Bethany's multitasking. She's back with Becky and Children's Church right now. She's not on the soundboard anymore. So if you're interested in serving, we've got so many positions available here in this church. We're making sure they still happen. You just don't see behind the scenes who's making it happen, but you can take a few guesses. All right, anyways. So Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite to each other. The However... The birds of prey, the birds he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came along. The birds of prey came along, but Abram drove them away. Okay, so let me recap this here quickly. So God made a promise. God made a promise. Abram believed 
the promise that God made. God credited him righteousness just because he believed. Abram was like, okay, I believe, but how's this going to happen? It's okay to ask God, how's this going to happen, you know? Abram was told to prepare a covenant ceremony. You see, this looks bizarre to us, to take these animals, to cut them in half, to separate the two halves, but this was actually a very, very common ceremony. When you walk into the Verizon store and you sign a contract, you know, that's kind of what this was. This is the old school covenant-making process. And what you were saying was, if I break my part, or if you break your part, we are going to end up just like these animals, cut in half, dead. It was a covenant forged in blood. Abram waited all day long. He did what God called him to do, and then Abram had to wait and wait and wait, and he didn't even know what he was waiting for. He just knew he did what God did, called him to do, and he's waiting on God. You guys feel like that sometimes? You're among good company. Your father Abram felt the same way. Not only did he have to wait all day long, but while he was waiting, he had to keep fighting off these birds of prey that kept trying to devour the sacrifice that was necessary to forge this covenant. The birds of prey kept coming in. It says then in verse 17, when the sun had finally set, when darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared, and it passed between the two pieces. On that very day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said... Forget about all the fine print and your, you know, Verizon and Xfinity contracts and all this. This was God's covenant. A few simple words. To your descendants, I give this land. It's an everlasting covenant still to this day. This land was Abram and his descendants. What gets tricky is Abram went, anyways, I won't even talk about that. That's another story for another time. But here's the question. What vultures are trying to devour your promise. What vultures are coming in in this in-between season to steal away the promises of God? Jesus reveals them through the parable of the sower. And I'm not going to read the parable of the sower for time's sake. The very first one is misunderstanding. Misunderstanding a covenant promise that God has made with you. You guys are familiar with the parable of the sower? If not, read Matthew 13 and you'll be really familiar with it. But Jesus said, Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and they don't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. But misunderstanding God, misunderstanding his word, misunderstanding who we are in him, it causes so many of God's promises to get stolen away. It is a bird of prey, misunderstanding. If you don't understand who God is, what his word promises you, and who you are in him, Misunderstanding any one of those things will cause you to miss out on God's promise. The enemy will come in and steal it away. He will deceive you. He will come in with that one little phrase. Did God really say? <laughs> right? There's another little phrase that he says, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. God, Jesus also revealed that God's word comes in a seed form. It takes time Often, it takes time to be received. And what happens to a seed if you just keep digging it back up, digging it back up, digging it back up, wondering what's happening, kicking it around, why aren't you growing, right? It'll never grow. Just believe, just believe, just believe the word. You don't have to figure out how it's going to grow. Who is responsible to make God's promises grow and fulfill in your life? God! 
You're not responsible for making it happen. You don't have to know how it's going to come to pass. In fact, did God tell Abram how it was going to come to pass? No. He just said, this land's going to be yours. <laughs> we don't need to know how. We need to learn to let go of that and have a little bit of faith and trust in God. He'll figure out how. <sighs> the bulk of God's promises are received over time and through process. Sometimes they're instant, but most of the time... It's through a process and over time. There's nothing we can do to hurry the growth process, but there's plenty that we can do to prolong it. Our role is just to believe God's word by faith and to trust him to fulfill it. We must also allow God to change us to be the right soil. Allow him to do the transforming work in us. And that leads to the next bird of prey, being disconnected. Oh, man, in the COVID season, did, did the enemy not run rampant with this one? disconnecting the body. I don't know if you've ever seen a body that got torn to pieces, but people don't exist like the black knight. You know, it's not a mere flesh wound. I mean, yeah, you, you get your, your limbs torn and you don't exist for long, okay? Your, your body needs to be together. It needs to be connected. Uh, Jesus said this in the parable. It says this, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and they receive it with joy at once, but since they have no roots, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they fall away quickly. We were created with the need for connections. Connections. And trust me, all this was supposed to be a part two of a message, but I just felt like today was the day. Connections for one another. Others provide support and encouragement that we need to remember God's promise and to remain firmly rooted in the promise. Trust me, you need other people to remind you of it and to keep you rooted in it. You can't do it on your own. This is the process that we call discipleship. That's what helps us to become good soil so that God's word can grow in us and it helps remove any opposition to the growth of God's word. You need others. Do not become disconnected from the body of Christ. You need your brothers and sisters to keep you rooted in it so that you don't fall away as soon as... What Jesus taught here is as soon as the word, the word gets opposed. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Yeah, so we need to be connected. And then the last bird of prey that Jesus kind of sums up here is worry. Worry, Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word. And we talked about this one extensively earlier. We never think about that. But people who have great wealth, we think that solves worry. But I've talked to people who have a lot of wealth they have a lot of worry because it takes a lot of work to maintain and to retain that wealth. And they worry that it's going to get stolen away. There's two little questions that the enemy loves to ask to steal away God's promises, just like this bird of prey. And both of them have to do with worry. The first one, we already talked about it back in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that? That causes you to worry. 
Am I standing on shaken ground? Did God really say that? Am I misinterpreting it? Did I not understand it correctly? Was that just a word for then and not a word for now? And it causes you to question God's word. Um, Then um, we have that other little question that the enemy uses. And it's just two little words. The enemy comes in and asks us, what if? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if you're not good enough? What if you sin? What if you're just, this is just a punishment and you deserve it. What, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Wow. Those two little questions create such seeds of doubt that grow up and snuff out the promises of God. Worry gets all entangled with the promises and, and just thieve away what they are. It, so, if we're able, like Abraham, Abram, to drive away these three birds of prey in that in-between season, we will be able to persist and persevere and endure until the promise is fulfilled. These three little birds of prey, misunderstanding, being disconnected from others, and worrying. Then the last verse will come to pass. God makes it grow, verse 23. The seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word, understands that this is the one that produces a crop. And if you thought that double and seven times was good, just because you busted the enemy while he was stealing from you and you're getting justice, Woo! Wait until you see what a blessing brings. Not double or seven times. Jesus said this one produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. And I love how Jesus phrases that. It's, it's written the same way in the Greek. It is not thirty, sixty, a hundred the way we would say it. Jesus starts with the good one. A hundred times! A hundred times! God's promise is able to produce in your life a hundred times what is sown. Everybody knows this. You don't sow a little seed and get one little seed pop up, right? You don't, you don't get a, an ear of corn with one kernel on it, do you? That is a failed crop. You need to learn how to farm. You're doing it wrong. No! You plant one little seed and you get hundreds of times the yield, don't you? It's no different in the kingdom of God. So this Thanksgiving Day, this Thanksgiving Day, let's dare to hope again like Abram did. To hope in the impossibility of hope. When you've got no reason to hope. When you've got every reason to doubt and to just give up and to, you know, just call it a day. Hope again. Let faith arise again within us. Start standing on the word of God. Start declaring with your own lips the promise of God. Declare it. Proclaim it. It's yours. Let faith arise. Let's thank God in advance for what is yet to come. This Thanksgiving Day, everybody gives thanks for what they got. You are a different people. You are a nation of priests and prophets. And so dare Dare to speak prophetically and to give thanks in advance for what is yet to come. Let's drive away those vultures and those birds of prey until the Lord quickly comes to fulfill what he spoke, even though it came at the midnight hour. 
for Abram, didn't it? But when it came, it came quickly. And when it came, it endured for all of eternity. That promise that that land is his forever. You have been adopted into a family. You are heirs of the kingdom of God. You don't have to beg and plead. They are yours. And so let's close in prayer. So Jesus, you have seen what the thief has done in my life. You have seen what my adversary has done. The things he has killed in my life and in the life of my family. The things he has stolen from me. The things that he has destroyed. Jesus, right now I'm crying out to you. Lord, give me justice for my adversary. Make him repay double, seven times what has been stolen. And me, I will stand in faith on your promise until that hundredfold return comes. And I thank you in it for advance. Thank you in advance for what is yet to come. Because every one of your promises are mine. And I will, will experience your goodness here in the land of the living. Not when I'm physically resurrected. I'm going to experience it here in the land of the living. It is going to be here on earth even as it is in heaven. For me and for my children and my children's children. And for all those that I come in contact with. Your kingdom will come here on earth in your name. Because it's not about me. I can do nothing good on my own. But Jesus, you can do all good things through me. For your glory and your name. Amen.